This episode of New Politics was released on the 24th of February, 2024, and produced on the lands of the Wangal and Wajak people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, asylum seekers and border protection is back in the spotlight, but is it the big issue that conservative interests want us to believe? The government wants to make cars more fuel efficient, but the coalition thinks that it's just another tax on utes. And the perverse one-sided media reporting on the events in Gaza. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, druid and mage. And we had to record this week's episode from a remote location, pretty much from a phone box, but it, it just goes to show all the efforts that we put into getting the weekly episode out there to the big wide world. And just a reminder, we don't have the billionaire owners or even the millionaire owners to support us, and that's a way that we'd like to keep it. But if you would like to support new politics, you can do that through Patreon or Substack, or you can make a donation at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. The issue of asylum seekers and border protection has come up again and you can be guaranteed 1,000% that if an asylum seeker sets even half a toenail onto the shores of Australia, Peter Dutton and the Liberal Party will be there with their megaphone, ramping up the fear and hate, claiming that it's the biggest catastrophe ever imaginable, telling everyone within earshot that Australia's border protection system is falling apart, and that it's a weak Prime Minister who's letting this all happen, and the boats are going to be starting up again. And this is exactly what happened during the week when 43 asylum seekers from India, Sri Lanka and Pakistan arrived in the remote Western Australian territory town of Beagle Bay and it continued for most of the week. Well it's not under control when you've got a Prime Minister who the first he knew about this boat was when the media asked him about it and I don't believe that uh, there are proper surveillance uh, methods in place. Uh, they've ripped 600 million dollars out of Operation Sovereign Borders and the department. Uh, this is not Operation Sovereign Borders as we knew it when the coalition was in power. They, they've abolished the, one of the important legs of Operation Sovereign Borders which was temporary protection visas. And don't forget, it comes off the back of a, a similar boat, uh, uh, you know, not too long ago. So the, the government's got all sorts of problems here. And it's a weak Prime Minister being tested by people smugglers. And when the Prime Minister says to you, there's nothing to see here, you know, once again, he's not telling the truth. And on top of the High Court release of the 149 criminals, the people smugglers look at that and they package it up in a social media message on their Facebook pages and Twitter feeds and they email it out to people that they know are willing to pay money to get on a boat to say, look, even if you've committed a criminal offence, eventually in Australia you'll get out into the community. It's all that layer upon layer uh, of weakness displayed by the government that is what emboldens people smugglers. And if we stick our heads in the sand and pretend that nothing's happening here and just take the Prime Minister at his word, uh, we'll end up with an armada of boats and that's the last thing anybody wants. And here's the Prime Minister in response. Well, he's just wrong. He's just wrong. And you know what he does every day, you see it. It's just fear campaigns uh, every day uh, that don't have a basis uh, in what is going on. And uh, he's someone who is defined by being negative. I mean, he's, he's the angriest opposition leader uh, we've ever seen. He makes Tony Abbott look constructive and positive <laughs> going forward. And we saw in, uh, in Nemesis how much uh, the coalition all hate each other. 
They're all still sitting on their front bench. Peter Dutton doesn't want to talk about cost of living issues. We don't get any questions in Parliament about cost of living anymore, which is what Australians are concerned about. During the last sitting week of Parliament, I can't recall a time when a Prime Minister did not get a single question from the opposition. Not one from the Leader of the Opposition, not one from shadow ministers, not one from backbenchers, uh, just uh, negative uh, fear campaigns uh, from the opposition. So we do have to expect hyperbole within politics, but this response is so over the top that even Liberal Party supporters have stopped believing it, and we have to wonder who this is all appealing to. And this is in stark contrast to Peter Dutton and the Liberal Party when they were in government, when they refused to talk about on-water matters and generally kept quiet about it. But whenever they see an opportunity to magnify this issue for political gain, they're very, very happy to talk about on-water matters. It's a tiny amount of people in the Middle East and in Europe, they're dealing with hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of refugees, which of course creates all kinds of logistical problems. But most countries understand that refugee, it's a legal role you can be and that you must um, look after refugees. It's not a crime to be a refugee, not illegal to seek refuge in another country. I guess Peter Dutton knows this, but I don't know that he's happy to let other people know. So we're in this political quandary in that Australia has to help. As a signatory of the Human Rights Commission, Australia has to help, but it doesn't suit either party to help them too much. It's one boat. A few people pointed out that it's a bit suspicious the week before the Dunkley by-election that it gets leaked. I'm not sure as to who would uh, leak it and what advantage they would have with a with the Labor government in. But it's certainly a typical response from Peter Dutton. The borders are failing. And of course, it's come out that under his administration, Border Force let more refugees in, had much looser borders, and acted much more corruptly than it has been recently. So we've seen, I think, in the last couple of weeks, the negative campaign they like to run are backfiring. And that What may have worked temporarily for Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison isn't working anymore. On these 43 asylum seekers from India, Sri Lanka and Pakistan, it's the perfect skin colour for a fear and loathing campaign which the coalition is only too happy to ramp up. And the issue of asylum seekers has been a high political issue since around 1998, so that's 26 years that we've had to put up with this rubbish. And it's an extension of that skill of the Liberal Party having that ability to magnify a small, tiny issue into something that is far greater than it actually is. But you also do need a little bit of help from other areas as well. And as you mentioned, David, there were those suspicions that the Australian Federal Police was involved in some sort of conspiracy with all of this. And I don't think they were actually involved in creating the event itself, but certainly with the way that it was ramped up and then put out to the media. And that's not surprising. They're so politically compromised and seem to offer as much support as possible to the coalition, whether they're in government or not. And when the coalition was in government, whenever there was a breach of Australian waters, former ministers such as Scott Morrison or Peter Dutton would claim that the government doesn't discuss on water matters. And then the media would leave it at that. But with the breach at Beagle Bay in Western Australia, the Media was tipped off before the local authorities were, and generally this is what they do when there's a politically favourable event for 
the Liberal Party. Now, we saw that with the terror raids in Sydney and Melbourne when Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison were the Prime Minister, only for no one to be charged with anything at all. And we also saw it with those union raids as well, or the raids on Labor politicians several years ago. No one was ever charged with anything related to that either. And the media camera crews arrived before the police did so that they could live stream these events to the public. And we also had that media release about boat arrivals on the day of the 2024 election and what a strange coincidence that was. And this is what has happened at Beagle Bay in Western Australia and the media was the first to arrive there. And there are strong supporters for the Liberal Party within the Australian Federal Police. Renee Valeris, she's a former News Corporation journalist and is now the media manager for the AFP and that's why you get a breach of these so-called on water matters. It's never discussed when the coalition is in government because that counteracts their tough on borders narrative, but it's always open for discussion when there's a Labor government because that damages them politically and it's also a convenient distraction from the Paladin material that was starting to come out against Peter Dutton that we discussed last week and a little bit of that Deirdre Chambers, what a coincidence feeling to it all. And This kind of action is going to continue and that's why the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese should clean out the Australian Federal Police as soon as possible because they are pretty much just a branch of the Liberal Party and these kinds of actions that are designed to embarrass the Labor government, they are just going to keep happening for as long as all of these coalition supporters are embedded within the Australian Federal Police. The Australian Federal Police need a complete clean out, a restructure the whole raison d'etre has to be rejigged. Uh, of course, there are good people who work in there, but its perception of being pro-liberal needs to be clean. Now, we don't want it to become pro-labor. We want it to be a, a, a proper law enforcement agency that treats everybody fairly. And even if they do that now, it, it's still a, a, a perception issue. And in politics, perception's everything. So they need to be seen to reform, absolutely reform, and uh, continue keeping the reforms. Now, the reforms may not need to be very big. It might just be a tiny um, tweak here and there. A couple of people moved aside, and again, it may be a completely structural reform where everyone is taken out and put back in in more appropriate roles for them and some not returned. We'll have to work that out. And some of our listeners have asked us, well, who's responsible for weaponising asylum seekers as a big political issue and when is it going to end? And asylum seekers do have the right to seek protection, but just end up being used as a political football by the coalition and the Labor Party sees it as some form of kryptonite and just want the issue to go away without actually doing anything to stop the issue going away. And the media is just as culpable in all of this, reporting these asylum seekers as the biggest threat to Australian security ever. And all of their stories were reported with dark and sinister overtones, complete with spooky music to go with it. Locals say it was the weirdest day in memory in the small bush community of Beagle Bay. The quiet Friday morning when an exhausted group of foreigners emerged from the bush looking for water and looking for directions to Sydney. One of the men agreed to be interviewed. He said he'd travelled to Australia by boat before, a decade ago, but was deported back to Pakistan. 
Pakistan, the Pakistan situation is really bad. And they, uh, they, they kidnap me, they torture me, they kidnap me for three days, they uh, capture my property, many things they did with me. And that's why I uh, left Pakistan again. He said he'd paid thousands of US dollars to board the boat to Australia with no idea where they'd landed. And these asylum seekers seemed calm and well-spoken and didn't seem to be a threat to anyone, but the media always presents them as an existential threat to Australia's security. And most countries around the world, they do have issues with border protection and asylum seekers to some extent, but it's usually the white, wealthy Western countries that ramp up all the fear and loathing. And the wealthier they are, the more fearful they become. And you just think, well, how could 43 asylum seekers be a threat to 27 million people in Australia. And I think that's what happens when you've got an insecure country about all of these sort of things, or at least an insecure political system here. And also there's a question about how can we have a measured and reasonable debate about asylum seekers. And that's probably never going to happen within the current structure that we've got. But the Liberal National Party shuts up when they're in office and doesn't want to discuss on water matters but ramp it up when they're in opposition. And when the coalition said that they don't discuss on water matters when they were in office, there wasn't actually a, a law about this. It's just that they worked hand in glove with the Australian Federal Police and that was the end of the matter. But maybe there should be some sort of legislation built around this, that issues that relate to border security are not released to the media on national security grounds. And I know that that might cause some other related issues, but if the... Labor government doesn't do anything about this. They will just continue to get hammered on this. Yeah, historically, Gough Whitlam was uneasy about refugees, complaining that he didn't want thousands of Vietnamese bolts walking into the country. Malcolm Fraser was the opposite. He was very welcoming. Now, Whitlam allowed Vietnamese refugees in. He was worried about an influx that Australia maybe couldn't handle. I'm not defending the way he spoke about it or what other attitude may have been underneath. Uh, but Malcolm Fraser was happy to exploit anyone of any background <laughs> and allowed refugees in, particularly from Vietnam, which he had to stare at some of his own party down. And the vast majority of those people, of course, as Fraser knew, enriched and improved the country. We've had since John Howard a reluctance to use refugees as a humanitarian issue, rather to use them as a political and fear-baiting and xenophobic issue. And there's some Labor people who have family or who were refugees. Uh, there were Liberal Party members too who were come from refugee background anyway. The, the divisions felt more in the Labor Party, I think. So I really think that they need to take a stand and say, yep, if refugees come, be looked after. And use the distance of Australia to understand that we're not getting the influxes that other countries are getting and stamp down the fear of people flocking in. I just don't think we're going to get hundreds of thousands of people. And if it's so easy to ramp up a fear and loathing campaign on asylum seekers, well, it's just as easy to ramp up 
the fear campaign on fuel efficiency. And the coalition just keeps reinventing new ways to become the enemy of the good. And in response to the federal government's proposal for a national vehicle efficiency standard, which essentially would save the average car driver around $1,000 per year and $17,000 during the life of the vehicle, as well as having an environmental benefit of lower emissions over the long term, the coalition's response has been to call this a car and ute tax and claiming that it's going to hit tradies really, really hard. Here's Senator Bridget McKenzie and Peter Dutton working in tandem. This community is the type of community that is going to be smashed between the eyes by Labor's car tax. Today we've been here at the local dealership looking at the top selling vehicles here in Australia. And they're top selling because they're the type of cars that Australians need and love to drive. I think it shows how out of touch the Prime Minister is that he's imposing this huge new tax on new cars at a time when families just can't afford to pay what they're facing every week in their budget. And they've even made the suggestion that the price of utes are going to go up by $25,000. Not sure how that's going to happen, but it's never clearly explained. And it's also not quite clear what the relationship between the Liberal Party and tradies actually is. But just like Scott Morrison, this is a group of people that Peter Dutton is also targeting. And it seems that they're trying to replicate the 2019 election campaign in the belief that because Scott Morrison won that election, it's a strategy that will win them the next election. But Lightning rarely strikes in the same place twice, and especially when it comes to politics. I think it's dangerous to take a group like tradespeople and assign to them a general trait. Now, of course, I'm not going to say that you know all tradies are greeny, left-wing, voting, woke. We have to remember that a lot of tradespeople are entrepreneurs. They believe in lower taxes. But it does make sense that the traditional values of the Liberal Party might appeal to some tradespeople in a way that the traditional values of the Labor Party might appeal to some tradespeople. It's about getting people who think, oh, this party has the support of tradespeople whose work and, and knowledge we value, and if they're voting for the Liberal Party. I think it's also a numerical factor as well. So around 12% of the electorate are male tradies or around 1.5 million people employed in the workforce and that's a substantial voting block. And they do tend to lean towards the Liberal National Party and not towards Labor, which is a little bit surprising. But they're not the only substantial voting block out there. Two million of the electorate are professional women who lean towards the Labor Party and Greens. But targeting tradies politically in this sort of blokesy, blokey type of way puts off a lot of professional women. So the campaign generally, all of this end of the weekend rhetoric and the ute tax idea, it's also a campaign against the environment, it's against renewables, it's pro-blokes and it's anti-women. And to negate some of these factors, that's why the coalition used Michaelia Cash to rail against electric utes in 2019. And that's why they've got Bridget McKenzie pretty much performing the same act in 2024. So that explains the reasoning behind all of this, but I just don't think that it's going to work. Because they have no vision and no real ideas except a vague attempt of stopping the boats and lower taxes, which is what they did in with Tony Abbott, and it only worked for 18 months. They then scraped through another two elections and two prime ministers. I don't know how they're hoping to achieve this, but the, the thinking is moribund and atrophying. 
And it's not just the coalition women who are getting into this narrative. The leader of the National Party, David Littleproud, he's suggesting that fuel efficiency would take away the country ute. It discriminates against regional people and that you can't let ideology get in the road of practical reality and electric utes are not strong enough to work on farms. And there's absolutely no proof provided for any of these claims. Journalists don't ever question the claims and these are just mindless opinions presented as fact and then repeated by a friendly media. And all of this is just not true. Some of the most powerful vehicles in the world are electric at the moment. They are the farm utes and heavy roadside vehicles. Every commuter train around Australia is electric, but the only people who are using their ideology to get into the road of practical reality are the coalition. And it's just an extension of what Scott Morrison said all the way back in 2019 during the election campaign including all on-road costs and all the rest of it, is about forty-five dollars to $50,000 a year. That's the cheapest car Bill Shorten wants to make available to you to buy in the future. And I'll tell you what, it's not going to tow your trailer, it's not going to tow your boat, it's not going to get you out to your fa- favourite camping spot with your family. Bill Shorten wants to end the weekend when it comes to his policy on electric vehicles, where you've got Australians who who love being out there in their four-wheel drives. He wants to say, see you later, to the SUV. And, of course, this is all being ramped up for the Dunkley by-election, which is taking place on March the 2nd, and it's obvious that the Coalition is ramping up all of this to generate a protest vote. But if there is to be a protest vote, Peter Dutton is not the person to go to sort out your problems. He's just an empty vessel that makes a lot of noise. And it might not seem so evident now, but the by-election in Dunkley could end up being Peter Dutton's last stand. And I don't want to sound like the little boy who keeps crying wolf because we've said this quite a few times before, but the Liberal Party has got quite a lot of problems in Victoria and that's where the by-election is being held. And Victoria is Australia's most progressive state politically. And I've got a feeling that Peter Dutton is political poison in Victoria. He's political poison pretty much everywhere around Australia, but even more so in Victoria. Victoria is the state that started the Liberal Party, and I think it'll be the state that finished the Liberal Party. Peter Dutton is not very popular in um, Victoria. And there's a sense in which that doesn't bother him because he's from Queensland. But he needs the support of the populist states. Uh, he's not terribly popular in New South Wales either. And in fact, we can say hello to the other four states. He can't win Dunkley, I don't think. It's too safe a Labor seat. But you'd be looking for some kind of moral victory. Where Labor still wins, but they've got to get it on preferences or, or they've got to get it on, you know, it, it's a 51 to 49. I don't think that's going to happen. And yet I've been thinking, at first we thought he'd be gone by Christmas. Any arbitrary date he gave, he sort of got passed. So I've been thinking, no, he's going to make it to the next election. But now I'm not so sure. There's enough quiet agitation that if he doesn't win, or if he doesn't show well in Dunkley, I think in this case, it will be a test on Peter Dutton's leadership. This is New Politics, one of Australia's top 10 podcasts on Australian politics and news commentary. You can support us through Patreon and Substack, and also find us at newpolitics.com.au.
And there's been a series of analysis that looks at how the war in Gaza is being covered and misrepresented in Australia. And the war itself has been comprehensively one-sided on the ground. And war shouldn't be restricted just to statistics. But since October the 7th, when around 1,200 Israeli civilians were killed by Hamas, almost 30,000 Palestinians have been killed by the Israeli Defence Force. And that's not really a war, that's an outright massacre. And the media coverage, not just in Australia, but all over the Western world, has almost been as one-sided. And it has improved over the recent weeks, but it's still very unbalanced, especially in news outlets such as News Corporation and Nine Media. And the media reporting of these types of conflicts shapes public perceptions and opinions, which then goes on to affect politicians and decision makers. And if the media reporting is skewed in this way, it means that it's more difficult to put pressure on political leaders and make the necessary political change, and the cycle of violence just continues. Yeah, it's so distressing, so awful. If you're on social media, you've probably seen the pictures of children and other innocents deeply injured and dead. The media itself is seems to be petrified of particular Zionist groups. Every time we talk about this, I, I have to ensure that people know that I'm not talking about the Jewish community of a whole. And I'm not talking about people's individual faith and background. I'm talking about particular people who are not just Jewish people, but who are promoting a violent ideology over how that area of the world should be shaped. And we have to be able to dis- debate and discuss ideas. And there's groups who don't want us to do that. There's groups who shut down all debate. Uh, we've seen journalists sacked. We've seen journalists be targeted by trolls and others for essentially having an opinion over ideas and actions, not necessarily other people. And good quality journalism seeks out diverse perspectives and I think we should be advocating for balanced and ethical journalism or at least a balance that works against the prevailing narratives that are provided within the mainstream media but the prevailing narrative within the media generally portrays Israel as the primary victim with a significant emphasis on Israeli casualties and trauma while ignoring or downplaying the casualties and the trauma on the Palestinian side and this one-sided journalism then goes on to affect political outcomes as well. And we saw that last week with the anti-doxing legislation that was rammed through Parliament. And doxing is that process of releasing, identifying personal material about someone without their consent. And this has been an issue for well over a decade through the internet and social media. But when the details of members of the Australian Jewish community were released a few weeks ago. That's when the anti-doxing legislation was created. And we're not suggesting that it's a bad idea to have this legislation. It's just a question of why this legislation is coming right now when it's been a problem for a very, very long time. And even asking these sort of questions, as we're doing now, David, that comes with the claims of being anti-Semitic. And this is a smaller local example in Australia, but it extends to other political actions in other fields. If the media plays a role in making Israel seem like the victim rather than Palestine, that's why you get the one-sided political response at the United Nations where even trying to make a resolution calling for a ceasefire is almost impossible. Yeah, there is this group of activists who don't want a ceasefire for whatever reason. They want a total military victory and that makes very difficult and then to be called racist or anti-semitic when you're not is a hurtful i, I notice certain 
lawyers, some of whom are of Semitic descent, are starting to look at defamation cases over it. And we shouldn't forget the Semites aren't just Jewish people, they're also uh, people coming from uh, the Levant and those areas. So it becomes difficult to talk about. It becomes tricky to talk about because you don't want to be inadvertently racist. But these are things that we need to discuss. And to get back to the point, our media hasn't really done a very good job on it. It's been social media who's been showing the balance. And it's true again in America and Britain and France. A better balanced coverage is Al Jazeera, who have done some very good reporting. That's Hind Rajab. The six-year-old Palestinian girl is begging the woman on the other end of the line for help. She's all alone. Hin's uncle, aunt and four cousins are all dead beside her in the family car. She's trapped. Hin stayed on the phone with the Red Crescent for more than three hours. By the time two volunteer medics reached her location, they couldn't get close to the car. And then, suddenly, all contact was lost with Hind and with the medics. That was January 29th. And after that, nothing. So what happened to Hind? Social media posts began trending, asking the same question. 12 days later, an answer. After Israeli forces pulled out of the Tel El Hawa area in Gaza City, Hind and her six relatives were found. The two medics sent to rescue her were also found. Everyone was dead. And this imbalance within the mainstream media, generally in Australia, that was highlighted in the incident of Pin Rajab, the six-year-old Palestinian girl who was stuck in a car after the Israel Defence Force killed the rest of her family in the car. And the Red Crescent was given safe access by the IDF to go and rescue her, only for them to be ambushed and all killed. So they were all lured to their deaths by the Israel military. And this was an international news event. It was labelled by many as a war crime. But there was virtually no reporting of this in any of News Corporation outlets. There was some reporting in nine media outlets and more substantial reporting from the ABC. And this level of reporting of this event roughly equates to all of those journalist junkets that were provided by the Israel governments that we looked at last year. And most of these junkets were for News Corporation journalists, quite a few more for nine media journalists. And I think there were there were just one or two for the ABC, so there were very few there. So there is that clear link between those state-sponsored education tours provided by the Israel government and the reporting of events in Gaza in Australian media outlets. And generally it's the Israel victims who are humanised and Palestinian victims are dehumanised or not even reported. And even when there are those few reports that attach a name to Palestinian victims or present a story that humanises Palestinian people, even if it's a six-year-old girl, the Israel lobby complains that it's the Israeli people who are the ones being attacked and unfairly treated. And even Prince William gets attacked for suggesting that the killing needs to stop. And I think that's a massive blind spot if the side that's perpetrating the killing of 30,000 people sees itself as the victim rather than the aggressor. But the bigger problem is that this is the narrative that ends up being played out in the media 
which then results in similar political outcomes as well in Australia and at the United Nations. And I think that's a real problem. Yeah, we've got to look at this stuff as it is and as it happens. The six-year-old girl and the Red Crescent look just awful. We're stuck in a strange loop where we're not getting good, good generalised centralised information and we're having to rely on other sources and the mainstream media complaints that it's losing relevance. As a result, it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.